Welcome to the Support Automation Show, a podcast by Capacity. Join us for conversations with leaders in customer or employee support who are using technology to answer questions, automate processes, and build innovative solutions to any business challenge. I'm your host, Justin Schmidt. Jason Viglione, good morning and welcome to the Support Automation Show. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Where does this podcast find you? I am in Northern Jersey, just outside of New York City. Awesome. I haven't been to New York in a while and one of my favorite places in the world to go. And with travel opening back up and this summer 1945 kind of vibe we're getting ready to go into, I might have to make my way back out to the city. It's one of the greatest places on earth, right? If you can't find it in New York City, it's likely that it doesn't exist. 100% true. Jason, you join us as the Director of Customer Support Experience at H1. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do at H1, and the journey that's led you to this point? Sure. So I'm a technology professional by trade for almost 30 years. I've been in some form of customer-facing help and support the entirety of that time. And for me, it's really about having tech be a hobby, an interest, something that I do, and understanding a lot of the complexities. I always said that as I grew up, I was going to stay ahead of my kids, for example, on the tech to make sure that they can't get one over on me. And I find that increasingly difficult. So I can only (laughs) imagine what non-technical people go through on a day-to-day basis. So solving the puzzle for them is something that's always been really exciting and fun for me. And also solving the puzzle for me, not being beaten by the machine. Computers do what we tell them to, except when they don't. And then it's a matter of making that happen. So at H1, I'm doing the same thing, except I have a unique opportunity. And it's actually the second time that I've gotten to do it where I'm building it from nothing. So go. I like to go into startup companies that are between that 50 and 100 people mark. They've hit their product market fit and they're growing and they're scaling. And now we've got to take care of people after they've come in the front door. We've got to do it efficiently and effectively. And how do you do that when support's constantly labeled as like a cost center where we're not bringing revenue into the building, but we're protecting it from going out? Yet we are making it go out because we're expensive. So how do you do this in a way that kind of helps everybody? And that's such an interesting and fun challenge for me. I've done it my whole career and I get to do it again. Have you spent most of your career in the healthcare and health tech space? No, I'm actually brand new to healthcare and health tech and all of that. And I'm learning a lot about pharmaceutical companies, things that A, I didn't know existed, And B, even more interesting, challenges the norm on what we've come to believe about big pharma and uh, whether they're doing right by us or not. And um, spoiler alert, they are doing more for us than we're led to believe a lot of times. Yeah, that's one of those industries with an impossible PR problem, right? Because it's expensive to develop their product. Uh, It's literally life-saving for us. So the stakes of what they deliver are extremely high and the mistakes that are made in, in the business or the the perceived unfairness or whatever it is, is just amplified to no end. So it's interesting from a support perspective, H1 
Is your team providing support for the doctors and medical professionals that use the product or for the end consumer? So it's actually all B2B. So it's the doctors that use the product. And these are people within pharmaceutical companies. So to give you the quick background on this, we're solving a problem that has always existed, but has been solved in a lot of band-aid ways for the history of pharma and computing. And effectively, if I want to launch a new drug or therapy or medical device, there are people in this world that are doing research on the condition, the indication that is being treated by that. And, and those people are known often. They are key opinion leaders. And how was this done before people like H1? Novartis or any other company would have a spreadsheet that had 20,000 rows on it of all the doctors, where they work, what they're studying. It was woefully out of date. And by the time they got through the whole thing, you know, so much time had gone by and a lot of inaccuracies. What we do is we pull public facing information about Dr. Justin, who works at such and such hospital. He's an oncologist, all these things. And we get that from the hospital's public website. And we get the publications he's written, the clinical trials he's been a part of, the payments he's received. We aggregate that into a doctor profile. So now these pharma companies can find these key opinion leaders that are searching within the therapeutic area and indication that matters to them very, very quickly with up to the minute, nearly uh, accurate, robust, comprehensive data. And then above and beyond that, we can rack and stack that. So if you do a search that comes up with 100 doctors, who's number one? Who's number 100? Well, we have an algorithm that sorts that as well. Right. So our thought process here is that if we can provide this information, pharma can make quicker, smarter decisions, get better products to market also more quickly, recoup the $4 billion go-to-market price tag on every drug more quickly, go generic and lower the prices more quickly. And that's how we create a healthier future. We get better drugs out in the first place. They make more money quicker, and then we help lower costs. And we're one cog in a very big machine, but I think we're a cog that belongs in that machine nonetheless. So we are working very closely with these pharmaceutical companies and their medical science liaisons that want to connect with these key opinion leaders to make these smart decisions. Yeah. This is good because we've now set the table, I think, for a theme that's going to carry through the rest of our conversation, and that is delivering support using technology and support automation to cater to a clientele that is busy. Everyone likes to say they're important people, but doctors are important people. And there's an expectation there that is maybe a little different in some other instances. But before we go there, I want to ask you a question that I ask everybody at the top of the show. And that is when you hear the phrase support automation, what does that mean to you? Uh, in, a, in a single word, to me, it means efficiency, right? It means letting the tools get out of the way of themselves. I don't want to have highly trained engine support engineers, whether they're technical engineers or, or they're very trained on the medical side of things, spending a lot of time moving through the UX of support, right? I want them to spend that time helping people. That means if they need to click less buttons, if they need a robust knowledge base, whatever it means to let the tools get out of the way, that's how I like to automate. Got it. Yeah. And that's, 
a common theme in the answer I get to that question is technology, automation, AI, specifically brought into the support space. And whether support means you're on the in the call center at, at a large consumer brand or you're working in IT for a B2B brand, there's still this impetus to make that person who's at that support desk or IT desk, help desk, whatever it is, be able to be as efficient as possible, but also not completely replace the human experience for when it matters the most. And oftentimes it's very easy to think, oh, we can just put a chatbot in front of our website and a voice menu on the phone and cover 99% of the problems. And while you can cover a lot of them, you still need to have bandwidth to, to have the high touch relationships with your most important customers. I'm curious in the healthcare space, if there's any part of that efficiency question or, or that efficiency opportunity that you mentioned earlier, that's unique to healthcare that maybe those of us who aren't in the health tech space wouldn't normally consider? It's a tough question because from a support perspective, it's it's really like any other SaaS platform, yeah. right? They log in, they get whatever we provide. I think there is a little bit of a difference because there are certain pieces of information that we are required to have additional levels of accuracy. For example, if Jason T. Viglione versus Jason B. Viglione wrote a paper, it could drive you down a much different rabbit hole of the results that you're going to get. Also, there's a certain level of, of aggregation and anonymization of data along the way due to HIPAA compliancy, for example, or um, simply looking at how much each person paid a particular doctor by name just makes for useless data, right? Where it becomes really important to provide this very quickly anonymously and aggregated where we can see, is this person important or not important? And it can make all the difference between this person being ranked number one or number 20 as an important person on this topic. Interesting. In terms of the way your group is structured, are you sitting inside of a larger customer success, customer experience type organization, or is support and success two separate teams with different reporting lines? So I'm inside of a bigger organization, but it does not include customer success. Hmm. So client services, we can consider that at the top. And then down from that, we have customer success on one side, and we've got client delivery on the other. And then delivery splits out to implementation integration, support, and some A&I. So even though we've got great analytics and the tools, stuff like that, we do have some custom reporting that goes out the door also. And pretty much everything comes into support and we farm it out to other people. And it's just because I, I am very firmly of the mind that I never want the customer to guess Oh, for this, I go to Jason's team. For this, I go to Justin's team. Right? right? Like You come to us. I cast a very wide net. You have anything, you come to us. We'll do the handling and the routing internally. So we have everything come to us, and then we'll kick it over the fence. Need be and operationalize the support 
that's not our true value add support. Right? And we send it to those people. So within client delivery, there are several teams. So yeah, we're always thinking about client facing at our level. And then as we go up again, we join with customer success under client services for pretty much all commercial outside of sales. Yeah, it's interesting to have these conversations for me because every organization does it a little differently. Mm -hmm. Every organization approaches the gray area between sort of sales, implementation, support, success. And then if we wanted to get even further up funnel, marketing starts to feed into, this is really just a customer journey, right? Sure. In terms of where you guys use automation and how you use it at H1, what are some examples of some wins that, that you guys have had by bringing technology into the client services division? Yeah. So one thing that's been really interesting with us is what we call data correction. And if you think about this, roughly 13 million doctors on the earth, we have a significant portion of those. And we've got a lot of data points between name and designation, right? Whether you're an MD or a PhD, where you work, what you do there, publications, clinical trials, payments, like there's so many data points coming from disparate sources. That's what makes H1 so critical to the pharma industry. It also means there's a lot of points of failure for data completeness, data accuracy. And both of those play right into customer confidence, which is how we partner with customer success on the journey and the renewal and, and the QBRs and stuff like that. So how do we bring these requests to say, Dr. Justin's email address is missing or Dr. Justin is showing that he works at Mayo Clinic, but it's the wrong location of Mayo Clinic because they have 30 across the US or whatever. And then get that to the data team that does the human side of the research validation updates to, to push it out to our product. And one thing is by grouping these by like kinds. So using a little bit of AI within our support ticketing tool, we use Zendesk to say, okay, this is about email for a doctor in this project. This is about email for another doctor in the same project. And we can group those together. And then we kick them to the data team. So now the data team is not looking at ticket one, find an email, ticket two, find the phone number, ticket three, look at a publication, right? There's no context switching that we're forcing our downstream teams to do anymore. They can, okay, let's rip through this list of embedding email addresses. Let's rip through this list of ensuring completeness of publications, et cetera. And that saves us a lot of time, both downstream to those teams, and when it comes back up for QA before we notify the customer, and we can batch those things together. That's a great example of efficiencies we found over the last 18 months. Yeah, that is fantastic. And a really good reminder, I think, to anyone out there listening who's in a situation where they feel like they are overwhelmed or their team is understaffed. And we all feel this. Pick your job title, pick your discipline, pick your industry. Everyone feels a little overwhelmed at times. But there is a lesson to be learned in just looking at where you can reduce switching costs because those are absolutely a killer. And it's not just a death by a thousand cuts kind of deal. If you switch tasks or switch your point of view 20 times a day, there's a significant amount of time that is spent recalibrating yourself to get back to what it was you were doing 
before. Like I've read as far as much as 25 minutes is spent refocusing on a task when you're interrupted from it. So to be able to, to batch things and for lack of a better word, assembly line yourself through a, a priority and, and, and project kind of thing, knowing the downstream and upstream implications of what you're doing is, is incredibly valuable. Sure. I think there's another good one where it comes to knowledge base because finding support agents who have the technical acumen to understand UI and UX have the also the ability to have that empathy and customer care and know the healthcare industry is very, very difficult, right? You can teach the healthcare industry, but you can't teach empathy. So I'm going to lean on that, the customer care side of things. Yeah. So you bring those people in and then what happens when they say, why isn't this insurance carrier listed in the payer, uh, the payer mix and that data? Well, I don't know. So how do you have a robust knowledge base? So what we've done is we've done a lot of knowledge capture where either a request comes in, they can look it up right within Zendesk into the Zendesk knowledge base and then pull out or parse out the information that's needed and, and push it through to the ticket automatically or mark the knowledge base as necessary and necessary to add, necessary to update, those kinds of things. So next time we don't go through this, and then we've got a private stack overflow-like section of our knowledge base where we create a side conversation with our CSM. So I can go, Justin, you're on this client. What do you think about this? That drops into the knowledge base automatically with your answer. So now we've got this stack overflow between us and, and CSMs and sales and everybody. So we can add knowledge to ourselves, reducing our own gaps as time goes on. So... Tickets often serve as trainings for us, but without the need to pause the ticket and have postmortems, we can do it on the fly with this method. Yeah. Knowledge capture, I'm glad you brought this up. This is a thread of a sweater that I don't get to pull on as much as I would like to in these <laughs> conversations, just because we talk about what comes up and I'm not one to force topics in, in, in a conversation because it just makes for bad audio. But sure, let's double click on this because I like this. So you have built, and I assume in your prior experience at Olapic, you, you took a similar approach here, but knowledge capture is something that you're building infrastructure and in the technology vendor aside, building mm -hmm. infrastructure such that you can have those kind of conversations and capture that knowledge as it comes up or do you also have scheduled reviews or try to time something with a product release or whatever it is to have the instead of your ad hoc knowledge capture you also have the regimented scheduled knowledge capture and i'm curious if there's value to both or if it's better to just do it the one way i'm, I'm curious just how you architect knowledge capture and why you do it the way you do it. So we have both, actually. It's it, there. You have to have both, I think, realistically. So having pre-scheduled, scripted articles going out about releases, updates, new features, it's super important. And that side, we partner with both marketing, product marketing, and customer success on that. We're releasing a new way to search by institutions, not just by doctor. Okay, CSMs, what are, you, what are the conversations you're having with customers? What are, what's their feedback? 
What are their sticking points? And we want to write those. And I want to write those from a support perspective because the CSM is doing an amazing job of value add, the why we should be doing this as a trusted partner. But we want to add how should you be doing it? What should you expect to see? And right. what are the things you might see if things go askew? So then when they come to us, it reduces our discovery time on no, not knowing what they did or what they were anticipating. We also set up with product marketing so we can put links. So when product marketing sends out these blurbs and these blasts that say, look what we can do now, super exciting, click here to go into the knowledge base for more information. And that article has a click here for the nitty gritty on how to click here, click there, do that thing. So that's important to have something that a lot of people struggle with because open rates, read rates, bounce rates on those pre-existing knowledge bases are pretty terrible typically because what do customers do when they get stuck into a hole? I'm going to call my guy. I'm going to call my girl at the place and I'm just going to get help with it. But it's table stakes to have that. You can't not have a repo of knowledge. So we have that. But then as things come in that are either not captured in that article because customers done it this way for the first time, or frankly, we're human and we missed it, then that knowledge capture allows us to answer the ticket very quickly, get the customer train to go out, put the Band-Aid on, and then use that to plus up the existing article so that information is no longer missing. So the knowledge capture on the fly, the ad hoc stuff, enables the support experience and uh, enriches the existing articles that we have. Yeah, you have to be careful with us marketing folk because when we describe something, it's always in the, the floweriest language and the, the vaguest of terms, yeah. I mean, it's our job. And then that gets to CSM, like the customer success explains things in a closer to reality point of view, but still to your point, value add and, and, and there's more sales and marketing speak than there is technical writing. And then you get to customer support who actually has to live with the reality of you specifically need to click on this field and you have to hit save before you do this. Otherwise, the way the thing actually works. And it's interesting when you think of the product use cases and all of the living with the product that the customer has to do and how that is perceived along the journey from marketing in through customer support. And you articulated that very well. One other question I had for you, and you mentioned this in, in your intro, on customer support and support being looked at as a cost center versus mm -hmm. a revenue driver. This is a topic that comes up often on this show, and I think it's one that's especially important for people earlier in their careers than you and I getting started, maybe they get their first leadership or management job in support, and they're going to have to advocate for support as a revenue driver versus a cost center you know, for the rest of their career, and, and unfortunately. But what's a piece of advice or a approach that you would give somebody who's looking at this challenge for the first time? I think you just need to firmly believe in what would happen if there is no support. Don't fall into the trap that we have support because, well, I guess you have to. There's always value that you can bring to your customer, to your organization beyond 
making sure there's not people with, you know, torches and pitchforks at the door. There are other things you can do. One example for us is if we have a customer that buys a set of data for pain management specialists, and then all of a sudden they're saying, hey, can you add this podiatrist? Can you add this podiatrist? Can you add this podiatrist? One or two? Sure. Maybe this doctor works in pain also, and you want to, you care about him. But if you're doing it in large batches, all of a sudden there's a commercial opportunity here because as a pain management company, you're looking at podiatrists. And it might not be obvious to you. Why? Well, plantar fasciitis is pretty painful, pretty consistently. Gout's painful all the time. Diabetic neuropathy. All of a sudden, you can see that there's an overlap. Now, you can do one of two things. You can solve each of these tickets individually, or you can recognize the commercial opportunity in that trend and then go to your account manager and say, look, they bought a lot of pain management, and now they're asking for a small percentage, but a large raw number of a different kind of therapeutic area. Do you want to have a conversation about this or tell me to ignore it and just add these people, like whatever you guys think makes sense. So think about those opportunities, right, to drive that revenue. This is not really support as much as it's success, but I think it's a similar customer care and happiness thing. That customer success was born a lot of years ago, right? Salesforce is having this conference and Dr. Doom, as he's now named, stands up and he says, our churn is 8% and everybody applauds and loses their minds. And when the crowd goes quiet, he goes, per month. Salesforce yeah. has been doubling their revenue, doubling their customer base year over year, but 96% that walk in the front door are walking out the back at the end of their contract. Right now, all of a sudden, success and support goes, it's great to sell them on the vision of the product. But if we're not keeping them happy throughout that duration, just going at month nine, we're 90 days out from renewal, where's the cash, right? We're going to have a problem and support plays a big part in that. So I think it's just really remembering that company A is not putting in a lot of tickets. Company B is not a pain in the neck. It is Joe at company A that's got 30 minutes to use your product in his schedule that's frustrated to help this man, whether he's the economic buyer or a daily user, because we don't want him to get noisy about this. And he's just trying to do his job. So if you think about it that way, and we help everybody throughout the day, you recognize that that the opposite of death by a thousand paper cuts. I don't know what that is, but you help a lot of people in many ways. And in aggregate, this company goes... Every time I log in, it works. When it doesn't, Jason and team make it work for me. Okay. And then it's the mistakes happen, but they take care of it uh, and it's fine. That's exceptionally important to keep that in mind and understand the value of every, I'm making this up, every three interactions a client has with customer support and things go well reduces the likelihood of churn at the end of the contract by some percentage and and those all add up so you get these opportunities in support where you don't get in pretty much any other portion along the uh, value chain where you have so many opportunities to make a very small but ultimately they add up and it's noticeable difference in the experience of a customer and the product that they're using the other thing that came to me while you were giving your answer there that you didn't say specifically, but it was obvious in just hearing how you talked about it. You clearly understand 
the customer ex expectation, the journey, the product, et cetera, with H1. And therefore, your ability to understand ways in which support drives revenue versus being a cost center is just magnified. So mm -hmm. there's a there's also a lesson in there to just, and this sounds obvious, but I've been around long enough to know that the obvious isn't always what happens. Really understand the product, really understand the value proposition and the, the benefits and the pain points that the product solves. And that just opens you up to all sorts of different avenues that you can take as you act as the spearhead of support in the meetings that determine if it's a cost center or a revenue driver. So that was fantastic. Yeah. There's something else that I tell my team repeatedly. And if I'm lucky enough to have any uh, current or past members of my team hear this, they're like, yeah, we've heard this a thousand times. And it's <laughs> setting that tone with the customer. And I'm very, very big on the first reply. So imagine this, we're sitting side by side and you ask me a question. You say, Jason, how do I do such and such? And I go, oh, I... Not 100% sure. I know who knows that. Give me five minutes. And I leave. And I'm going to ask this guy because it's in this area. And I leave. And I come back 10 minutes later instead of five. And I go, listen, I know it's me longer. But here's what I found out. I've set that tone where you go, all right, he's not just going to ask everybody until he gets the answer. He, he's targeted. And if it takes me a little bit longer, then so be it. Conversely, if you ask me a question and I say nothing, but I just stand up and silently leave the room. And then I come back five minutes later with the answer. You're going to go, that's great, but where on earth did you go? Because who just stands up and leaves the room? So by buying some goodwill, not just saying your call is very important to us, please stay on the line and we'll be with you shortly. And after three or four times, you feel anything but important, right? You give some context and, and, and some targeted attack on what you're thinking. And you've bought yourself the opportunity to go and get it right and come back and deliver this to the customer. That means anything that is a little off-center, not dramatically so, but a little bit, you're going to have so much goodwill and good faith built up with that customer that it's going to remove future friction. It's going to diffuse a lot of the anger that they have along the way. And if you can take from one minute to three minutes for your first response, and that buys you from five minutes to an hour on the resolution, you're net positive every time because you've created a positive rapport at the outset. And that makes all the difference. And that's how when the customer sits down in a QBR and the CSM says, look, we know you had 27 tickets this last quarter. We're sorry about that. They go, yeah, but it's fine. And the Jason's team, they always come through and they're always very helpful. There's another lesson in there and it's relevant to the theme of this show, which is if you don't have enough time to be able to say, I'm going to get back to you in five minutes and you aren't doing good knowledge capture, you don't have the right KB or ticketing system or the right level zero chat deflection or whatever it is that buys you the time to have those types of moments, you're never going to have those types of moments. And therefore, you're never going to build that rapport, whether that's with your customer or your team. So it's very important that CS organizations optimize the ability for their best people to do their best work. And I want to close the meteor portion of this 
conversation. And this has been a great conversation, by the way. Thank you so much for, for your time. Love but it. one last question for you before we get into the quick fire round. And that last question is, what excites you the most about the future of automation and AI in support? It's like everything else, I think, in tech that we're doing right now. And it's using this information to find insights where they didn't previously exist. So how do we take raw, unstructured data from customer conversations, phone, chat, and pull out sentiments from that? How do we know that Jimmy is not aggravated? He just comes in all blustery all the time, but then he calms down very quickly when he knows you're going to fix it versus somebody who is actually irritated all the time. How do we stop shooting the support messenger? Because when we say, listen, the product team said, no, they're not going to turn the platform purple for you on Thursday. Sorry. And they go, I hate my experience with support. No, you don't. You hate the, the, the bad news I gave you and you shot the messenger, right? The AI is allowing us to extract context from things we never could before. We know how people really feel on support. I don't get tone of voice very often. I don't get body language. Right. Anybody that's not you right now doesn't know that my hands have been flailing like a crazy person this whole conversation. But AI and tech are doing this for us. And it allows us to circumvent that first in, first out, right? First right. in, first out, but then we escalate by exception. Well, this customer is unhappy. This customer is very big. This customer renews at the end of the month. But now we can go, this one individual really brings up a very good point. They're very aggravated about this. We didn't think about it. They didn't say as much, but the tech has made it very clear. So I'm really excited to be able to do more things by understanding the person coming to me. Yeah, absolutely true. The ability to understand sentiment and be able to offer some sort of prediction on what to do next or likelihood of escalation or whatever it is, is is exceptionally valuable and it's why you see the big customer data platforms having so much success it's why you see companies like zendesk continue to grow companies like capacity get founded and and, and enter the market it, there's a lot of opportunity here and mm -hmm. i share your excitement as that being one of the next big frontiers if i could jump in one more thing about that you said two words you said likelihood and you said predict. And those two words are so paramount in my world because I don't know what's going to break before it breaks. If I did, I, you know, <laughs> I'd have a lot more money, I think. But we use trailing indicators so much. And I just had this conversation with some success friends. You know, NPS, are you going to recommend our product? Well, let me decide first and let you know. And if it's negative, we've got to change your mind. How was your experience with support? Right, you've already right. decided. But predict and likelihood tells me Oh, you're going to walk into this dead end. Let me stand there and go, wait, don't go this way. This is going to work out better for you, right? And that sentiment tracking is going to tell us where people get aggravated before it happens based on trends and sentiments pulled out of unstructured emotional data, that sort of stuff. And it's going to make a world of difference. Absolutely will. Let's end with our, I always joke, famous quick fire round. It's like when you go to the the diner on the side of the highway and they're like world famous fried chicken or whatever. And there you go. Like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the host. I get to call it a famous quick fire round. There you go. What's the book that you most often recommend to people? Delivering Happiness, the book about Zappos. 
it's even though I'm not B2C and it's got really nothing to do with me and the type of support we provide, the way they care for customers is unmatched. I won't buy shoes from anybody else after some experiences I've had. Yeah, Tony Shea is a real tragedy and a real loss, but that guy absolutely 100% lived and brought the walk to the talk at how Zappos manages customers and everything else. I've, I've never talked to a person who has had a bad experience buying shoes at Zappos. If you did tweet me at jtron9k, I would love to hear. Yeah. I'd love to hear it. What's the best productivity tip, hack, trick, app? The practice of productivity and, and helping you get the most out of your day. What's the best one that you've folded into your routine? Pomodoro timers. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. You get a lot of tickets popping in. It's very easy to get distracted by the new queue versus the recently responded queue versus the time-sensitive delivery queue. And Pomodoro timers, for those that don't know, 25 minutes, but you can set it up as long as you want. Really, that makes sense for you. And this is just a focus for this amount of time. Do nothing else that expires. Stop, recoup, set it again. And we do that. Hey, set the timer, jump in, new queue. Let's get first responses out, make people feel heard, do nothing else. It expires. Okay, take a look at what's up next and do that. And this hyper focus that you get on that means that you're never going to leave a response half written to a customer when you get pulled away for something else. I have a one of those Elgato stream decks that all the big streamers use to trigger their mm -hmm. whatevers. I'm not a streamer, but I use it as basically a shortcut machine. And I've got, I'm looking at it right now, a tomato icon that when I click, starts a 25-minute timer, puts my computer in Do Not Disturb. And then after 25 minutes, the timer dings and my computer leaves Do Not Disturb. And you know, I, then I take that five-minute break to just check Twitter or whatever and you know, see check sports scores or whatever it is. And... The Pomodoro technique is one of those things that if you Google productivity tips, it's the first thing that comes up in most instances. There's a reason for that. <laughs> you know what I mean? F absolutely fantastic. It's unique in support Pomodoro timers because typically support leaders don't want people going heads down in something because there's so many inbound requests. But if you've got the right coverage and the right team and the right flow through things, you can have somebody that's going to just deliver value in one thing uh, for a while. Also, your thing about your Elgato was the best and worst answer I've heard because I've had one in my cart for about a month uh, as a non-streamer also trying to justify it, and you just did that. Do it. Set aside a couple hours on a Saturday, get yourself a cold beer or something, and start messing with it. I've got, I'll send you something after this to show you some of the weird stuff I've managed to do with it. Very, very, very cool. <laughs> if you could recommend one website, blog, Slack community, LinkedIn group, real life group, whatever, for support leaders, what would it be? I would suggest you follow Jason Vigliano on LinkedIn. <laughs> Love it. And you know, it's funny because I'm half kidding, actually. I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn telling people how to do things, right? How to think about things. And it's really because I've been in this industry for 27 years. I started with break fix when somebody said my printer won't print because he kicked the cable out under his desk. All right, up to SaaS and, and cloud-based computing now. 
And there wasn't a LinkedIn, there wasn't a me, there wasn't a you, right, helping get information out to people. And a lot of what I've learned and do well is only because I did it really not well for a very long period of time because we were trailblazing. But you got to remember, I started in computing when computers were not networked. So we've learned a lot along the way. Some of it, you know, happy accidents. Honestly, I put a lot of content out for people that it, it makes them feel you're not alone in this mistake that you made. Here's something that you can do, not because I've got all the answers to the universe, but I've screwed it up enough times to learn <laughs> from it. And I want to, and I pay that forward. But Gain, Grow, Retain is a CS featured community. Yeah, they're fantastic. But they very much understand the overlap between CS and customer support. Christy Felteruso is a close friend of mine. She's great. Brett and Jay are awesome. And the whole community has really come together on that. Christy and I co-hosted webinar and one panels on more than one occasion. So like she, as a CS powerhouse in this world, she loves support also and helps weave that in. So they're a great community. So don't feel overwhelmed by the success side. Yeah, I've had both Christy and Jeff on this show and... Both of them are just wealth of knowledge in CS and understanding that relationship between support, success, sales, and the whole customer journey. And I just thought leadership for days. And you do have a good LinkedIn uh, profile. You do share a lot of helpful stuff. And it's one thing I really appreciated when we were going back and forth about doing this show. You said, what hasn't been talked about yet? And I was like, oh, I love it. Because sometimes people book, I get on here and we have to find what hasn't been discussed yet. But mm -hmm. it was, I, I appreciated you letting us know a, a, ahead of time. Jason, this has been a fantastic yeah. conversation. I really appreciate you taking some time out of your busy day to chat with us, to share some insights. If people want to know about more about you or H1, where can they find you? So H1 is just h1.co. Uh, go check it out. It's awesome. Our tagline is creating a healthier future. I really think that we are. It's really important work that you don't know exists because it's behind the scenes of the pharma industry. Happy to talk about that with anybody to, to explain what we're doing. I'm on LinkedIn, right? So obviously you find me there. That'll probably appeal to everybody. I'm JVig, J-A-Y-V-I-V-I-G on pretty much every platform that you can find out there. So if you want to look at the, the silliness of Instagram, you look that or the serious stuff on LinkedIn. I'm there. I'm active on all these things. And I've found a lot of great value in, in these social channels. I use them pretty specifically the way that they're built. So you get a different experience wherever you go. Love it. Well, I appreciate your time, Jason. Thank you for coming on the Support Automation Show and you have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was awesome. Everybody out there, support rocks. Please be kind to your friendly neighborhood support agent. We're just trying to make your problems go away. The Support Automation Show is brought to you by Capacity. Visit Capacity.com to find everything you need for automating support and business processes in one powerful platform. You can find the show by searching for Support Automation in your favorite podcast app. Please subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Capacity, thanks for listening.